get it. Monday, August 31st, 2020. Born the Battle. Brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs. The podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Last day of the hottest month of the year. Looking forward to seeing these temperatures start to come down here in a bit in hot, humid Virginia. Hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. Whether you're listening from the blog page, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your pod-catching app of choice, thank you for spending some time with us here. Uh, Looking back from last week, no ratings or reviews, but we did get a question that came in through the comment section on episode 207's blog on blogs.va.gov. This one is from Mike Weddle. Says, look forward to weekly Born the Battle podcast and have been visiting past podcast episodes. I'm assuming he's going through the blogs. Requested Born the Battle to be added to Pandora, Vietnam era vet. Mike, I don't know if you requested us on our behalf, but if so, thank you. Because we did receive an email from Pandora at our email in our inbox here at podcast at va.gov. I don't know where or how you asked, but thank you, Mike, for seeing that. Uh, I thought we were on Pandora until I checked. And lo and behold, you're right. Uh, I also sent a screenshot of your comment to our podcast hosting site that houses us and asked them, how do I fulfill Mike's request here? And they sent me back a reply. So we're going to be up there soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. News releases. Okay, we have a couple from VA and an update from the IRS for veterans who did not get a coronavirus stimulus check. And I want to talk about that one first because it could directly help some of your pocketbooks. A contact from the IRS called me after I recorded last week's show and told me that I should let everybody know. Basically, if you missed out on a COVID stimulus cash payout, the VA and IRS has a fix to help you out. They reopened the deadline for veterans who missed out. Now, this was also tweeted out by Secretary Robert Wilkie and was written about in the Military Times, so you can go look to those sources as well. And they lay out the extensive news release. It was pretty long. Uh, Both of those sources end up sending you to irs.gov forward slash coronavirus forward slash non hyphen filers hyphen enter hyphen payment hyphen here. This seems to be for those that didn't file a return with the IRS, Uh, but you can go there, read up on the information there as well, and there is a portal there to enter in your information. So if you didn't receive your stimulus, go check it out and submit your info as soon as possible. Okay, on to VA news releases. Uh, First one says, for immediate release, VA to award more than 425 grants, totaling $279 million to help prevent and end veteran homelessness. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced it will award more than 425 grants to community organizations totaling approximately $279 million under the Grant Per Diem program. The GPD program provides funding to community organizations that provide transitional housing and supportive services for homeless veterans, with the goal of helping homeless veterans achieve residential stability, increase their skill levels and income, and obtain greater self-determination. The award period begins on October 1st to support three types of grants to address the unique needs of veterans who are homeless. First one is the per diem only grants. They are used to provide transitional housing beds and operate service centers for veterans experiencing homelessness. Second one is the special needs grants, 
which provide funding to organizations that incur additional operational costs to help veterans with special needs who are experiencing homelessness, including women, individuals with chronic mental illness, and veterans who care for minor dependents. And the last one is transition in place grants, which provide funding to community agencies that place veterans experiencing homelessness in transitional housing while providing them with supportive services. These services are designed to help veterans become more stable and independent with the ultimate goal of veterans assuming full responsibility for the lease or other housing agreement. When that goal has been achieved, the transitional residence becomes the veteran's permanent residence and supportive services come to an end. The GPD program has provided veterans who are homeless with community-based transitional housing and supportive services since 1994. The number of veterans experiencing homelessness in the U.S. has declined by 50% since 2010. It's a good stat. Due in part to the GPD program and other VA efforts. For more information, go to va.gov forward slash homeless forward slash GPD dot ASP. And there's some PDF lists on there that list out all the awardees. So you can find the ones in your area. All right. The second one says VA rolls out new patient appointment tool as part of electronic health record modernization transformation. More EHRM news says the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs launched a new appointment scheduling tool on August 21st at the VA Central Ohio Healthcare System to make medical visits more efficient for care providers and veterans. A critical component of VA's electronic health record modernization effort is the centralized scheduling solution, which will be implemented at all VA health facilities to expedite patient care coordination throughout the department. VA's current scheduling solutions require VA staff to log into multiple software applications to coordinate calendars, clinicians, rooms, and equipment. This process requires time-intensive manual data entry and workarounds to finalize appointments. CSS will address these challenges by providing an all-in-one appointment management solution that offers scheduling by resource, for example, clinician, room, equipment, etc. For more information on the scheduling solution and for the full status of electronic health records modernization efforts, visit ehrm.va.gov. All right, our guest this week is a former Army infantry officer with combat experience. He graduated magna cum laude with a bachelor's in economics from Vanderbilt and a master's in business administration from Harvard Business School. Currently, he is the founder and CEO of ID.me, whose website states that they simplify how individuals securely prove and share their identity online. Trust me, as a guy who doesn't trust sharing any info online, I had a couple questions about all this. He owns a couple of patents dealing with online credential authentication, and he was recognized as Inc. Magazine's five amazing military entrepreneurs of 2015 and as a top 20 military veteran tech entrepreneur in 2016. He is Army veteran, Blake Hall. Enjoy. Uh, okay, so Blake, we're going to start this interview with the way we start every interview here on Born the Battle, uh, talking about when and where you decided to join the service. So when and where was that for you? I decided to join when... Well, there are two moments, really. So my grandfather was a command sergeant major, um, war hero in World War II. My dad was enlisted, then went to West Point, was a brigade commander. So as soon as I knew I was going to college, uh, I knew that I wanted to do ROTC and I wanted to serve. Um, but the second moment while I was on campus at Vanderbilt was uh, was when 9-11 happened, uh, right at the beginning of my sophomore year. Mm. And that's when I knew I really wanted to serve and that I wanted to be an infantryman 
as well. So I think, you know, one was just something I kind of grew up with and was a rite of passage for my family. And the second was, all right, you know, 18 and 19 year old Americans are going to go to war and, uh, and I want to be the one to, to lead them. Yeah. I think everybody that, that has lived through that time. And it's, it's amazing to think that there are, are, you know, I think even veterans now that have, that didn't go through nine 11 or they were babies. Um, yeah, I think everybody knows. And it's kind of like, it was like our, our Pearl Harbor, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you, you remember exactly where you were when it happened. Um, were you already in ROTC when that happened? I was, I had just finished my freshman year and my commitment to service began the first day of my sophomore year. But yeah, it was, it was really eerie. I remember my history teacher crying in class and going home and then even like the next few days there were no planes in the sky because everything was shut down. It was, uh, it was definitely one of those moments where it hits home. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so, so really it, it pretty much just steeled that resolve that you had initially it was seeing that. So, uh, cause that must have, I mean, you said you have to commit at the, at your sophomore year. I mean, that was that September 11th. That's right there. <laughs> know, it was right there. And you know, what was really interesting too. We were a peacetime army when I joined peacetime military and walking around campus in uniform, people would kind of look at you funny. Um, and the moment, you know, from September 12th onward, um, folks just looked at you differently and, and supported the uniform and the military differently. So it was, it was definitely, uh, the most united, you know, I've ever felt. And, and with everyone in uniform being at the tip of the spear, it was kind of clear what we needed to do at that moment. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard a lot of veterans say, especially those that were serving at that time, uh, I was still in high school. Um, it, you know, September 11th was one of the worst days possible, but September 12th was one of the best days Yep, because they saw that, that, uh, great time of history where it didn't matter, you know, and you look at events, you know, now and you think back to September 12th and it's like, you know, that was a great time in American history as, as far as everybody come together for a single purpose. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, I think folks had just taken it for granted. And then all of a sudden when the military got moved front and center, it was really cool to, uh, to kind of feel, um, everyone's like almost like the country's appreciation for, for service. So the next, the next few years were really special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Vanderbilt, um, you know, I've been to Nashville. That is a, by the way, that is a <laughs> great place to go to school. It's amazing. <laughs> 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 it came down to West Point or Vanderbilt. And we went to, yeah, we went to West Point, went to Vanderbilt. And I saw a group of girls walk in front of me and I looked at my dad and he looked at me and I said, well, <laughs> I think <laughs> made it so. I mean, so. You, I mean, you got the, you got the whole, you know, row down there and then you got the other row, the music row. I mean, just, it's just a cool, oh, cool town. So good. Yeah. Love here in George Strait, uh, Amarillo by morning. So good. <laughs> now, um, so you, you, you just said you joined the army after that, um, now you were in Mosul. What year were you? Were you? Where you were you there? I got to uh, to Mosul in uh, June of two thousand and six, uh, and and then uh, we were there until December of two thousand and six. Um, my brigade uh, was designated the Surge Strike Force, uh, so we went down to Lake Tartar in Fallujah, um, then to Baghdad in January of seven. I uh, did some stuff around Karbala uh, when uh, Kais Kazali's guys overran a, a J-Cop down there and 
and executed some Americans. Pretty pretty awful deal. Um, yeah. And then uh, and then eventually came back in uh, in September of two thousand and seven. So it was a fifteen month tour, all in. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, uh, it sounds, you know, it's funny how I have these discussions about that time. It's like, it sounds like you got there as soon as I was leaving. I left in August of 06. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah. But, I, but I was out, but I was out in Alambar. It's, it's, it seems like a lot of these conversations, it's like, well, cool. We could have like shook hands. Um, <laughs> yeah. Talk to me about the, now, were you a platoon commander at the time? I was, yeah, I was a, I started out as a platoon leader and then took over scouts. So I had the battalion scouts in the sniper section. And, um, and I led them throughout my entire combat uh, deployment. Talk to me about the attack on the combat support hospital in Mosul. Oh my goodness. October 12th, 2006, I'll always, um, remember that. So, you know, one of the things I really loved my non-commissioned officers, we had a great relationship and, um, and I listened to them a lot. So I took a particular interest in, um, in the mortar cells that were uh, targeting different bases around uh, Mosul. And I, I really didn't like that they could just kind of pop and drop with impunity and, you know, keep everybody yeah. on their toes and move. And so my NCOs had told me um, two things. They said, sir, when, when these guys pick their firing points, they like to have direct line of sight to an aiming point on the base that they can mark off of, you know, like a water tower. Mm. Um, and they like to fire max range, uh, because they just want to get the heck out of Dodge before, you know, our air support and counter battery and everything else goes into effect. So I said, okay, makes sense. And, um, yeah, so it was our, it was our second patrol of the day. It was right around dusk. We were tired. Um, we'd usually roll out for three or four hours. Uh, we'd do some, uh, some high value target raids if, if one of them came up, um, and then we come back. I just remember being really tired when we got in the truck. And um, as we exited the base, there is a, a, an exit route called Dogleg because it, it went uh, at a 90-degree turn. So you would go alongside the base, and then you'd turn uh, and go north to, to get out to the main road. And then there was an east-west highway that ran across the Tigris. And so right as we were on Dogleg running parallel to the base, um, I heard boom, 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 boom. And... I'm the son of an artilleryman. My, you know, I grew up at Fort Sill and I was like, what was that? That, that was a time on target. And I could immediately tell those were either 120 millimeter or 82 millimeter shells just from, just from the, the, uh, percussion and, um, yeah. and they were close. Like I could, I could actually like, you know, feel, uh, the impact cause we were right by the combat support hospital. And, um, and so, you know, 30 seconds go by and then whoop, 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 and like, I'm like, oh man, this is, this is battery fire. What's, what is going on? This is, you know, Iraq in late 2006, you should not, uh, receive sustained battery fire on an American, yeah. you know, combat, combat support hospital. Usually it's a guy going home on a, on a timer, yeah. you know, he sets a timer and keeps going on his way. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Like normally, you know, they have the pickup truck and they like drop the tube. They, they drop one shell, maybe two, and then they're out. These guys were good. Uh, you can tell they were professional because, um, time on target standard is all the shells impact within five seconds within, a defined, you know, radius, uh, of, of where they're aiming for. And, and they definitely hit, uh, that criteria. So, so I, I pulled out my map and, and literally later our, our sniper section leader started to sap. He's like, sir, he's like, I thought you were so full of when you, when you pulled that map out. Um, 
But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant with the mad jokes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I, what I did was I, since we were right at the point of impact, I, I just drew um, a quick, um, I just drew a quick radius and a circumference for what the max range would be. And I intersected that on my map with, with different fields that might have direct line of sight to the base. And I came up with two locations. One was, um, and you went old school. Oh yeah. I was definitely yeah, a protractor and like, I'm up there in my hatch, like just, we were rolling in strikers. So four, four strikers rolling straight 50 cal, you know, for the, uh, the main weapon on top. And, um, and so I found one of those aiming points and I said, I, th- I think it's the Southern, uh, aiming point. And I just tell, I told the guys, it's like, all right, you know, get, get inside. Uh, so you don't get hit by any of the shrapnel. Um, we're going to fire this thing up and get over to that aiming point to that, uh, suspected point of origin as fast as we can. As we exited dog legs, this happened very quickly. This is like 20 seconds. So we turn North right as soon as we turn north um, and we start to clear uh, and get onto the main road, a vehicle bomb goes off behind us and about a hundred fighters storm the alley. Oh, wow. And what we found, what we found out later was um, what they wanted to do was they wanted to actually breach the base and they wanted to, to take American um, soldiers hostage and execute them so that they could get more funding from their donors. Sure. So that was the goal of the attack, but it was, it was huge. There, there were somewhere we estimate between two to 300 fighters total involved in, in this attack. Um, and they wanted to keep the quick reaction force uh, on the base. So I literally, my, me and my 24 guys, my 24 scouts and snipers, we had just gotten out of that trap uh, when they set it. And so I looked behind me because I could hear the base towers open up and I... I did not want to get into a firefight where two American units were firing down the same alley you know, with, sure. with Iraqis in the middle. That just felt like a recipe <laughs> for disaster. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I said, you know, we're going to go after this mortar cell and we're going to take out their indirect. And um, the striker is amazing. So we hit 55 miles an hour. We crested the uh, the bridge, I believe it's bridge uh, five, if memory serves, over the Tigris. And... Right as you crested, I could see the whole city, and it looked like Star Wars. Um, you know, when the tracers and, and that magnesium just pop straight up, and you can see like the red and the green. I mean, yeah. it was the whole city was just like lit up. I've never seen anything like it. Um, and uh, and so anyway, we we got across the Tigris, and this is now like three or four minutes since the uh, the indirect started. And I, I got a call from Patriot X-Ray and they said, hey, Lightning 6, Patriot X-Ray, um, you know, uh, grid from the, uh, the, the counter battery radar follows. And they read the grid to me and it was right in the middle of the circle that I'd made on my map. And I said, you know, round to that, Lightning's 400 meters <laughs> out, closing rapidly. And, uh, and then my next, my next radio transmission was, you know, we're in small arms contact, engaging mortarmen, request immediate close air support. It was it was crazy. Uh, I led with um, my uh, my sniper section and uh, my scout team two, and that southern section. It, it was literally like four tubes. They had a flatbed truck, and when we crested a berm, you know, they were literally just like eyes <laughs> as wide as saucers, just <laughs> staring at these twenty ton strikers. Because I mean, we'd literally gone from point of impact to point of origin in, in less than five minutes. Um, wow! 
So we rolled up that cell pretty good, but then they had overwatch from three different spots. So, so my guys on the Southern side really took heavy fire. I went back around North and destroyed the truck and we got uh, a few more fighters that were trying to squirt out to the North. It was pretty hairy. Uh, quick reaction force took about an hour to get to us. We had no close air support and we were fighting in three different directions. I couldn't allow any crew served uh, just because there were, they're, you know, even shooting back towards the base, like the risk of, um, of hitting Americans, you know, with, with our two forties or with our saws was too great. Wow. Um, I'm so proud of my guys. I, none of us were killed or wounded. Um, we, uh, we stopped the attack before they'd fired even a third of their ordnance. Uh, there were already 10 urgent casualties back on the base. So, um, yeah, it's uh, definitely the best, best day of my life as a military leader. And, um, two of my guys, uh, got the bronze star with valor and I'm, I'm so proud of them. So it was, uh, it was awesome. Gotcha. You also received the bronze star, correct? I did. Yep. Gotcha. Very good. Very good. So while you were in who, give me either your best friend or your greatest mentor who helped you develop those skills. My best friend uh, was Nick Wells, the medical officer. Um, he and I have such a special relationship and really it's just cause he's crazy and he's, he's funny. <laughs> so, you know, he just, he just kept me loose. Um, everyone loved Nick always ready with the joke. Um, we'd work out all the time together and it can be pretty lonely in recon because, um, there's not a lot of other platoon leaders. Uh, and I, I was, I was moved up a year early, so I was more junior anyway. So mm. Nick, Nick became like the one person that I could, you know, talk to and jam with, um, uh, and, uh, and got, got me through some, uh, some rough times. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so how long did you serve? Uh, I served four years in active duty. And then, uh, when, when we got back, I went to Harvard business school. And while I was at HBS, I served in the reserve. So I, I supported a unit out of, uh, uh, Fort Devens, Massachusetts that supported European command. And, okay. um, and did that for another, you know, three years or so. So it was seven years total all in. Why did you decide to get out? Was it, was Harvard a big factor, a big pull? No, you know, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think like a lot of service members who, who fought over in Iraq and Afghanistan, I became really frustrated and disenchanted with the lack of a broader strategy. Um, it seemed like some of the most basic things about what is winning, like, can, can, like, we, we are the most amazing military that's ever walked the face of the earth, but nobody could seem to define what does victory look like yeah. and what do you want us to do? And it, it felt very Don Quixote, um, you know, to, to like sort of shack up in our fortresses and like drive around and get blown up and then just do it all again the next day instead of actually going in and owning the battle space, you know, and, and doing whatever it was that, you know, somebody wanted us to do and it sent us over there for... So I, I really struggle with that because when you're putting young Americans in harm's way and if you're asked to take life, you really want to understand why you're doing that. And, yeah. and for me, it was just way too um, – I don't think that we had the leadership to define like what it was that we were there to do and therefore give us the goal and the clarity we needed. And, and you know, the um, – the second part of it was, uh, from an officer's point of view, I, I had a wonderful time. I was uh, 27 months as a platoon leader, 
And, uh, and I just couldn't stand the thought of having to do PowerPoint presentations for battalion staff. And like, that's just not my DNA. If they let me, you know, lead yeah. builders and like kick doors and stuff, uh, all day and I'd stay, but, uh, but that PowerPoint route was just not appealing to me. I can understand that. I can understand that. I, I personally, I liked, um, creating as a combat videographer. I liked, uh, going out, shooting, cutting, getting my hands on the, on the equipment. Yep. Um, and then when they, you know, staff and CEOs, it's great to lead a combat camera shop. Uh, but it was the, it was great to lead young Marines, but it, when it, when it, when it got to the staff meeting part, um, I was, I was, I was over it, you know, <laughs> and, and the whole politics that came behind the leading, you know, sitting down with the young Marine and mentoring them is great. But when it came down to the bureaucracy of it behind the scenes, um, yeah, I can, I, 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 I knew it was time to go. I just, for, that was just, because some people love that and some people are good at that too, as well and can still affect change there as well. I, I just, it, my stomach, I, I just, <laughs> I wasn't built for that. So I can totally understand where you're coming from there. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent, man. Uh, if you, if you like to be action oriented and to be a doer, it's really hard. There's some great staff officers and NCOs that are great planners, but it's just a different breed of person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, so you got out, so you got, so what year did you get out, uh, active, uh, active duty 2008, June, 2008, 2008. Yep. Gotcha. Now that was, uh, was that right before the recession? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was crazy. The financial crisis happened right after I started school. Um, so I'm actually very grateful for the timing there that I, I had a bit of a safe Harbor. Now, so you, you did you have to foot Harvard Business School, or did you have like a yellow ribbon program? How did you how did you make that work? Yeah, there were there were yellow ribbon programs, and then initially the um, the first family uh, that started HCA. Um, I don't know what's what, HCA. HCA is a major hospital corporation in the United States. It's it's like the first or second largest network of hospitals, okay. and they're based out of Nashville. So Senator Frist from Tennessee, um, you know, is a heart surgeon. But the, the founder of, um, of that hospital network, he was actually a door gunner in Vietnam. Oh, and, wow. uh, and, and he sponsored um, folks who had you know, ties to, to Nashville, which I certainly had because of Vanderbilt. So initially, I was sponsored um, by the Frist family. And then you know, with, with, there was some aid that came in through Yellow Ribbon and, and from other sources that made it work as well. Got you. Got you. Because I know, I know it's not... You know, I know it's expensive being at Harvard. So. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap. And then one yeah. thing too, for all the vets who listen to your show, uh, the VA's vocational rehabilitation program. Um, I believe if your disability rating is, uh, well, I, I don't want to say it wrong. It's your 10 or 20%, but if it's over that, then the VA's voc rehab will actually reimburse educational expenses. That's something to definitely, you know, check out if, um, yeah, we've been we've been meaning to do a, a benefits breakdown. I've had a I've had a couple requests on that, so mm-hmm. um, that's good. It's a good that you mentioned that because I, I I definitely need to start looking. I need, I definitely need to find a point of contact there. The whole pod the whole part of this podcast is me. I mean, before I I did this podcast, before I joined the VA, I was a veteran that was uh you know a hard push away for for the for the VA. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a bad experience probably about four years ago, and, and I was yeah. so part of this part of this whole podcast is me going okay and learning about the VA, how can I help other people? So it's good that you brought that up. So I definitely need to start looking at a book rehab. Um, now after, after school, did you go into entrepreneurship right away? 
Yeah, you know, and and actually on that note, uh, I did. I, I started. Um, <laughs> I'll get I'll get to that journey, you know, in a second. But sure, sure. One of the things while I was at HBS was a lot of my guys were struggling with PTSD and with you know the consequences, um, everything that goes along with that. And uh, Sergeant Emmett Cullen, he was one of the Bronze Star winners that that day during our firefight. He he had been through. Um, two combat deployments and had done uh, them really like close together. So he had just like cycled on to our unit, you know, and, and was back in Iraq, like, you know, five or six months after he had, he had completed his previous tour. Yeah. Um, and he really struggled. So he went to go see, uh, you know, VA for, for mental health. And, and he met two or three times with, uh, with a counselor. And then when he went back, I guess this counselor was on vacation or on leave. And, um, and he sat down and the guy just looked at him and said, why are you here? And he's like, sir, it was so depressing that he hadn't read my file, you know, just didn't seem to care. He's like, I just got up and walked out. And, um, and I was like, oh my, you know, but, but it was during that time when everything was so raw that, that they would call me, you know, and, and I would jam with them for, you know, an hour or an hour and a half. Yeah. And, uh, and I still felt like, you know, we were such a tightly knit team that, um, that I was taking care of that group because it, as you well know, like the impact of combat is not over when the deployment ends. Uh, there's just a natural time that you need to kind of heal up from all the spiritual stuff and the trauma that you witnessed. And so that was a big part of my responsibility. I think even while I was still at school was kind of, you know, taking care of them and then and then also working to bring my uh, interpreter's family over to the United States as well became a, a really important mission for me. So absolutely. Absolutely. Did, is he is he here? Well, uh, <laughs> he was um, he was killed uh, in a house bomb uh, with the unit that replaced us uh, in January of, uh, of 2008. Still like um, he's like a little brother to me. But um, but I found his family. And, uh, and I, you know, I told him that I would bring him back. So I fulfilled my promise to him and I eventually got them over, uh, to the United States in, um, in 2013, right before ISIS, you know, kind of took over parts of the country. So wow, his brother, sister, and his mom and dad are, are all in, uh, the States. Um, they're doing great. And, uh, and the mom and dad live in El Paso now. Outstanding. That's outstanding. Thanks buddy. That's outstanding, man. Uh, it's a good way to honor him. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yep. Oh, so, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think back then the VA was, was, I think it's safe to I, I think it's fair to say that they weren't prepared for as many mm -hmm. people that were coming back. Um, and I, and I think it's fair to say it's gotten a lot better. Um, I know when I got out, I, I even when I got out in 2015, I, you know, I had a bad experience. I walked away for about four years and, and all it takes is one person to make the entire VA feel bad, like in your mind, like that's a bad organization, right? Yep. And then you come back and you're like, oh, this guy actually is much better than the previous guy. <laughs> and then you, and then you actually have a relationship with the VA. So. I agree with you. I think, I think the VA has come a long way. And I, I think, I think, every, I think the vast majority of people at VA have always cared, right? There's, yeah. but there's always like Absolutely. in a huge organization, there's always a few folks who, who will leave the wrong impression um, but I am so proud of how far VA has come in terms of delivering services and, and just making itself more user friendly. Um, it's been really fun to watch because it's, it's such an important thing. And, 
and from you know va.gov and making digital accessibility um, easier so that veterans can just navigate it without having to go to 500 different websites to just the the feel and tone of orienting services around the needs of the veteran it's been really phenomenal to watch uh, i was going to hit you up on that because i know you know of course you're the founder and ceo of id.me which is which is the way to sign on to va's plethora of services <laughs> and, and you and you hit the nail on the head i don't know man during during my va rejection phase it seemed like there was a lot it seemed like there was yeah. <laughs> i'll call it that um it seemed like there were a lot of ways to sign into the va system you had your cat card when i was still setting up my record transfer stuff when i was still in then you had the DOD website that was the portal to the VA. And then I think ID.me came after all that when I just decided to quit logging in mm-hmm. because, man, I, because I, I had to reset everything. And, and I just kept thinking to myself, uh, you know, I'm an older millennial. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine someone from World War II, Korea, or, or many Vietnam veterans trying to figure yeah. this out. Yeah. So, so my question to you, my first question to you, Blake, <laughs> is like, why another way to sign on, man? <laughs> like, yeah, well, um, so let me, yeah, let me, let me start with like some of the, the VA stuff, you know, just when I got out. So, you know, one of my first um, things I wanted to do is I just wanted to register my business as a veteran owned business. And sure. um, I thought it would take like a couple of days, maybe, you know, to get it submitted and then a few weeks for it to process. And it didn't. I tried for over a year and wow. I never, I don't know if I ever got it certified, but I would have sent like a Sarah McLaughlin video because the website would just like not be available. It'd be like, it's just down for like a week. And, <laughs> and I'd be like, okay. <laughs> like, so I guess I'll wait a week then, to, you know, to register my business. And then I go back and the, the login wouldn't work. Um, and so, so when we got brought into it, you know, and I'd, I started IDME around that same time, and our first mission was to really help service members and veterans because one of the first things I saw was uh, like uh, every Veterans Day when every business in the country pretty much gives some benefit to veterans. Yeah, um, veterans don't the most of them don't have an ID card. You know, there's like eight million veterans who have a Veterans Health identification card, but. At the time, you know, there was like 13 to 14 million veterans who just didn't have an ID card. They had a DD-214. Yeah. And so you'd see like to get a free appetizer, like a blooming onion at the Outback, they would ask to see a DD-214. And that to me struck me like as crazy. Like you should not show your social security number to a stranger to get a free fried onion. That is not a, <laughs> not a good trade. Sure, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah, wow. Like, here, fried onion, here you go. You know, here's the, it was just one of those things where I was like, wow, like this is, this can't happen. I, rem- um, I remember those days. I remember the, like I'd see an older veteran pull out, pull it out of his back pocket and like put the thumb <laughs> over the social security number, you know, like, cause he knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, and there's like fake DD214 sites that abound, you know, any, mm. anyone, I, I I saw some stat that I thought was pretty funny that, you know, there's only like uh, uh, several thousand, you know, Navy SEALs, but at any given time on the internet, there's like two to 3 million. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so, you know, so I said, okay, like this doesn't seem right. There's so much generosity and goodwill. You know, Microsoft was giving away free e-learning vouchers, but was making veterans show up in person at a Department of Labor office to claim the e-learning voucher, yeah. which to me, I was like, doesn't that defeat the entire point of, of e-learning? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair point. So, there, so to your question, you know, why another login? Like the first thing that started it was, 
it's not even just for VA. A lot of the services and benefits that veterans are eligible for um, come from nonprofits and from the private sector. And so how do you quickly establish yourself as a veteran at those locations with a login that's portable so you don't have to create a password and go through another verification process? And you know, today our customers include um, Apple, you know, Luxottica, Ford, GM, um, uh, and Bush Gardens, of course, like Waves of Honor, they give away free free tickets at different times for for veterans and yeah. uh, and for active duty. Um, you know, and and Amazon has like different Prime membership things. You know that that we all you know power and um, and so the notion is sort of like PayPal for identity. If you verify your your identity and your military status once. You now have you know four hundred plus brands, including Samsung and you know Beyond Petroleum and Verizon, that you can go and and get financial savings from without having to disclose all the information on your DD two fourteen. So all these all these places they have a place where you can put in your ID.me. Correct. Yeah, if you go to apple.com, for instance, and you scroll down to the footer and you select their veterans and military page, yeah. you'll see IDME is on that page and you get 10% off all the Apple products um, that you want to shop for, which is which wow. is a huge savings. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Same thing, same thing for Ford or GM. If you walked into a dealer, you know, they really struggle with abuse because salespeople on the lot were using military discounts you know, and first responder discounts as, um, as a, as a way to like kind of help a sale for somebody who didn't serve, you know? So they'd be like, Hey, are you a firefighter? You know, and some customer might be like, no, like, and they're like, if you're a firefighter, I can give you $500 off your F-150. And it's like, like, yes, (laughs) (laughs) I just like pulled a cat out of a tree like yesterday, you know, interesting, interesting. Okay. And so, we are now that trust layer that says IDME will do the verification so that Ford's, you know, corporate finance knows that uh, the the benefits are only going to those who truly served and are eligible. And at the same time, by getting rid of that fraud, they were actually able to make the um, the benefit richer for those who were eligible, which is really cool. So that was the first thing. The second thing. Yeah, the second thing, um, well, there, 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 and there's two elements to this. The first one was a lot of the systems that were up there, uh, you know, consumer websites are available, you know, 99.9% or more of the time, meaning if they're down, they're only down for like a few seconds a month. The availability of the uh, logins at, at Veterans Affairs were, were nowhere close to those, you know, standards, first of all. And then the second thing was, you know, if you want to access sensitive information online, like your healthcare records um, or your benefits information, uh, and, to, and to do things like change your direct deposit around, there were two issues. The first one was online identity verification was limited to those who had credit history uh, and to those whose data is accurate in credit records. Mm. So if you don't have credit history or especially if you're younger um, and, you know, and, and maybe a, a veteran who doesn't have a lot of credit when you, when you get out or, or we even see older veterans, you know, who just have a bank account. They don't have a credit card, so they're not in credit records and, and they, they would fail. Yeah. Women are disproportionately likely to fail because they are more likely to change their name after getting married. And so, sure. so all these groups are essentially disenfranchised only because they don't have credit history and they would have to go, you know, in person to a VA facility to, to prove their identity. And we just felt like that wasn't right. So, um, 
So we built a product called Virtual In-Person Proofing. It's a video chat product. And, and if somebody isn't present in credit records and financial records, which is one of the requirements that we have you know, for, from NIST, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, to, to verify who you are, mm. we can just move you into a video chat, FaceTime, Zoom, Google Hangouts. And with your face and your government IDs, we can virtualize what that in-person process would look like. And that average is less than five minutes. So instead of having to, you know, take time and like drive somewhere in hours of your life, you literally can get through in just, you know, a couple of minutes. And now you've got this login that's not only accepted at VA, it has the same usefulness that your actual military ID card did. Because when I served, you know, I could go to Home Depot and I could go to, you know, Qdoba or whatever. And whoever had a discount, all I had to do was like flash that credential and, and get the offer. And so IDME has just really replicated that in digital form. We increased accessibility. Um, so now every single eligible veteran and you know stakeholder that VA has, like caretakers, can verify their identity online. We call that our, our no identity left behind mission. Mm. And then and then once you're verified, it's that enrollment is now useful at you know 400 plus organizations where you can get significant financial savings as well. Um, and you don't have to release all the information on your DD-214. It's yeah. like your name, your email, and like that you're, you know, a veteran or a retiree and that's it. Very good. Very good. Now, one thing I've seen in comments when it comes to like online verification and ID.me and some others is, you know, I'm not signing up for digital access to my records because I'm not giving a private company my PII, you know, mm -hmm. do you have access to the PII? Could you steal an identity or sell someone's PII? What, what's out there that prevents you from doing that as a private company? Is there legislation? Um, is there any kind of government oversight for that? Yeah. So, well, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. And it's part of our NIST certification. But the, the first thing is just as part of our terms of service or privacy policy is that we will never sell your information to anybody. The only person who controls the, uh, the disclosure of their information uh, is the user. So the, the analogy is like um, a bank or, you know, Visa, right? Yeah. So Visa doesn't sell your data. What Visa sells is, uh, or your money rather, Visa sells trust and convenience. So that um, an individual who's got a payment credential and a merchant who've never seen each other before can transact in seconds. So that is our business model. We sell trust and convenience. The only um, individual or entity who controls release of data is the actual user. Uh, so we will never disclose data um, that's written into our contractual agreements. It's part of our um, auditing process against the, the NIST standards that I referenced before. Sure. Um, and it would literally destroy our entire business model if um, uh, and, and it would violate uh, a lot of the contractual agreements where we've made those representations specifically to partners that that is exactly how we treat. Um, data. So it is very locked in from many different angles, but it's also just like core to who we are. Sure. Um, I've, I've, you know, we've heard, we've heard a lot of companies, you know, and uh, you know, th that say that's who they are and then they turn around and that happens. So it's good to hear that there's, there's contractual agreements. It's good that they hear that there's an auditing process from the government. It's, yep. it's good that they hear that there's a lot of that. So uh, what am I missing? Any miss, anything I'm missing on that for, for the, no, for, the, the, the only... for the, for the boomers out there? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the other part too, is that I'd say, um, you know, for, for having a modern stack and, and we have best of breed, you know, security. So SOC 2 
um, going through the FedRAMP process with VA, you know, right now, um, we get audited by the largest companies in the world. Um, yeah. You know, all the customers I just ticked off, USAA, um, the venture capitalists, you know, who, who backed us and so on. But we don't sell we don't sell data. And that's that's the most important thing is what we do is we give people time back. Yeah. Um, and and I'll, I'll use one quick example for how this happens. Like in California DMV, uh, 25% of Californians who show up at the DMV don't bring the right real ID documents. Sure. So it's like a five-hour penalty on your life to get feedback at the DMV and then to go home and get the documents and to come back. That happens to somewhere between one and a half to two million Californians per year. It's like 10 million lost man hours mm. per year on that one workflow. Um, and it's DMV time, which is probably the least quality of lifetime. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what we do is like they can now upload their documents, you know, from their kitchen table and they can get personalized feedback that says, oh, we noticed, you know, your USAA insurance bill doesn't have your name on it. It's got somebody else's. If that's your spouse, you're going to need to bring a marriage certificate to show that you're married to this person, you know, and like yeah. basic stuff. And, and we're... And, and in that flow, we are literally saving um, them three minutes and 30 seconds when they're in the DMV by pre-imaging their documents. And we're saving you know, them a repeat trip. And there's so much operational savings by removing that friction. That's what we monetize. The actual data is, is always controlled by the end user. And we've won a number of privacy awards for that. But I, I just wanted to kind of emphasize how we make money. Uh, said folks understand it. Gotcha. Very good. Very good. Um, yeah, you got a, you got a number. It sounds like a number of private and, and government contracts. And I want to dig into to entrepreneurship on that on that end in a, in, yeah. in a sec. But another thing that I noticed is that you have uh, talking about your business. You have a lot of products. You know, I've only I I'm only you know referencing the the sign in on va.gov, but you have which is an, I, I guess an identity gateway. I'm assuming mm -hmm. correct. Um, yeah. But you have you have multi factor document verification, compliance monitors. Uh, these can both be these can be in person, online, or virtual in person, which I'm assuming, like, which I'm assuming is what you just talked about, like a zoom or something. Correct. Um, quickly. Can you explain the difference in each of your products when we're talking about uh, multi-factor document compliance monitors? Yeah, sure. So, um, so when you set up multi-factor authentication, like you have a password and then you add a device or like an app with a code generator on it. Yep. What that's really doing is it's protecting your account from takeover. So we don't necessarily know who that person is, but but now we know it's the same person that's coming back over time. And if you use Gmail or one of the mail services, you're familiar with that. Yep. Like email providers don't need to verify your identity. They just need to make sure your account's not taken over by a bad guy. And then once we know it's the same user coming back, now we can begin to add you know, credentials to verify who you are. So you, you can verify your legal identity, and that's what we do at va.gov. Uh, so we can tell VA, you know, Tanner's Tanner. And if Tanner wants to look at his, you know, GI Bill benefits, or if he wants to change, you know, his direct deposit or look at his benefits letter or whatever, um, he can go ahead and do that. And you can, you can release that information to him because he is who he's claiming to be. Tracking. Um, and the, and the, the one part I didn't reference is that we've got the self-serve online flow. We got the video chat for those who, you know, live overseas or don't have credit history, um, who are completely blocked. And, and we also have an in-person app that we've deployed with veteran service organizations so that if you happen to be, you know, um, walking into like a VFW post or 
an American Legion post, the, the notion was that you we could opportunistically credential you using some of those veteran service organizations. Um, now, that's your legal identity. What we also are capable of doing is adding additional you know, credentials into your, um, your account and making them portable. So we've, we've credentialed about 10% of all the healthcare providers that have prescription authority in this country at this point. Wow. So if you're a veteran who's also a doctor, there are apps that use us for electronic prescription for controlled substances. Like you could prescribe a narcotic online and actually, if you were a veteran doctor and you were at Allscripts, you would find, oh, the identity I already verified at VA. All I need to do is add my DEA number and my MPI number. And then we make sure those medical credentials match you know, your, your legal identity. And now we can tell a healthcare app, not only is this person who he's claiming to be, but he's also you know, an oncologist. And he's, he's authenticated to the DEA standards where he could actually prescribe a narcotic online. A lot of states are mandating electronic prescription only uh, to fight the opioid crisis. Um, it's just too easy to forge a prescription pad that's uh, that's just a you know a, yeah. a pad and a pen. And so so there's there's like half the states in the country have mandated this already, and we are one of the ways that um, that they verify. And, and so that's a is that is that a compliance monitor type of system? So the, yeah, so for the compliance piece. Where that comes in is um, for SCRA benefits. Uh, SCRA benefits are really powerful, and and one of the things that I don't think enough active duty service members take advantage of. One of the things that you have to watch out for is that you have to proactively ask uh, the business for the SCRA protection. What is SCRA? Uh, so so sorry, yeah, yeah, no I hate acronyms, and I'm using acronyms. Uh, <laughs> Service Member Civil Relief Act. Okay. So the Service Member Civil Relief Act is the act that prevents banks from like foreclosing on service members' homes while they're deployed. Okay. And if you gotcha. claim relief from like a credit card company, they have to cap your interest rates at like five or six percent. So okay. if you have a credit card that's carrying interest at eighteen or twenty percent, you go, Hey, I'm active duty, I'm protected by the Service Member Civil Relief Act. They immediately have to bring your interest rate down to a very, you know, nominal rate. Wow. Uh telecoms have to like freeze or let you out of your contract so that you don't have to pay your phone bill, you know. I remember I did that. Um, yep. Yep. So so all these rights, but but you have to proactively ask for them. And then you need, you know, the businesses also need to understand who's still protected and who's not. And so when it comes into compliance monitoring, that's where we really want to help as many folks who are eligible for service member Civil Relief Act benefits get those benefits because they're they're really important for financial health. And then the second thing is like in a medical context, you know, a, a doctor might have their privileges suspended or revoked by a state medical board. Yeah. And so we don't want to authenticate a doctor who just had their license suspended uh, to let them prescribe a narcotic. We want to help those applications understand their status has changed. So that's where some of the monitoring and some of those credentials uh, comes into play. And we, we provide that as a service as well. Very good. Very good. Appreciate that. Um, now, okay. I feel like I've grilled you enough on, on, <laughs> on security and, and, and how you do your business. Um, but let's talk about starting a business since you, yeah. you, you founded this business. Um, uh, you, you talked about some of your clients. Uh, they're both in government and in the private sector. And I think you're the first entrepreneur that I've had that's really gotten into the government contracting space. You know, other entrepreneurs like I've had on uh, Cortez Riggs and Perry Fioras, um, they started businesses in the private sector. But ID.me, mm -hmm. like I said, is, is, is both. Um, how are those sectors different and how are they the same? 
Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> I expected a long answer on this one. Yeah. You know, um, they're, they're, they're different. They're the same in the sense that the largest organizations, you know, that are out there have a procurement process. That's not too different from the government. There's really RFIs and RFPs and you have to respond to all this stuff and it takes forever. So, so from, like a, like an Apple's like that. Um, maybe not Apple. Apple's actually really good. I don't okay. <laughs> but there are some other companies that are, you know, that are huge that we worked with where it's just really, really painful. Gotcha. I won't, um, I won't make your name names. <laughs> <laughs> There's some that, you know, definitely been like, oh my goodness. Um, just need to take a walk. Uh, <laughs> um, what I think the private sector has, though, and, and this is a great book for veteran entrepreneurs to read, is, is Jeff Moore's Crossing the Chasm. Mm-hmm. What Jeff Moore did is he he basically created a framework to understand that there are, there are different segments of the market that will adopt your product uh, according to its maturity. And so if you if you think about the private sector, for us, when we were first starting, we didn't have any of these regulatory certifications. We didn't have all these capabilities needed to like verify people without credit history. Um, we didn't have a network of, of places where our ID was accepted. Yeah. So we, we had to find like the sweet spot um, size of organization where we could enter the market. And to me, that's the most difficult part of entrepreneurship is where do you enter the market? And, um, and for us, that was Under Armour. So Under Armour was the perfect brand. They were... They were big enough to matter. Uh, they had a strong um, brand, you know, commitment to military and first responders and to public service. Yeah, and and they needed help going direct to consumers, where we could really help them with their with their um, awareness of of the offer. So so Under Armour was really critical for us and was the right place for us to start because it allowed us to make money and it allowed us to polish our product and it allowed us to to build up a base of credential users. Um, and from there we got overstock and then it took a couple more years, but we got fanatics and like all the professional sports leagues and their e-commerce sites. Wow. And then we closed Ford and then we closed GM and then we closed Apple. So there's, you know, and, and now we have Samsung and beyond petroleum and Verizon and all these like amazing. Now they're you know, calling logos. you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But that's 10 years of suffering, you know, to get to that point. And so, so in the early days when you don't have a lot of resources, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like if I use a scout analogy, you know, if I've got my 24 scouts, um, I can pick off like a fire team that's out there. But if I run into a company sized element, I would not be well advised to engage that company sized element with my scout platoon. Yeah. And you go after the mortar team. You go out yeah. to the mortar team, and yeah, exactly. Mortar team, you're a hero, and like you know, you can run around and do whatever you want. Uh, you engage the company, you're probably going to be like trying to to get as much cover as possible and not firing back because you're just trying to save your hide. Yeah, um, and that's the right analogy. That if you try to take on you know the large federal agencies or government or or even huge private sector logos, and you don't have the right resourcing for it you're going to get wiped out. And and so you have to just be mindful and self-aware of like what you're bringing to the fight and then align your target accordingly. Very good. Very good. Um, government. How did you enter the government? Was the VA the first government entity agency for you guys? 
Um, well, there were, there were two phases to that. VA was the first large customer for IDME in the, in the public sector. Um, but the first government agency was actually the Department of Commerce. So Interesting. The, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, there were two things. One, they agreed that veterans you know, showing their DD-214 was unacceptable in terms of risk of identity theft and privacy. And that that risk was far greater than having, you know, a company like IDME that has all these security certifications and stuff, you know, verify that. And then instead of releasing your social, just releasing your military affiliation. So, so they've given us over $5 million in grant funding since 2012 and have been really important partners and all the security and privacy um, uh, capabilities and things that we have. Um, we did that in conjunction with NIST, uh, which is the government agency that sets the security and privacy requirements. So that was a core partnership for your entire business model. Core partnership. Yeah. Yep. Without that grant program, I don't know that we would have made the transition over to the federal government, to be quite honest. Gotcha. And then the second thing that NIST was doing was they had a strategy. It started with... Um, with uh, the Bushy authentication program, and then under uh, President Obama, it changed the national strategy for trusted identities in cyberspace. And it's got a new name now, but it's it's essentially like, how do we make um, digital credentials move with the end user? And and the way they explained it to me was, it doesn't make sense for the same person to go to social security, create a login, verify their identity with Equifax, Go to VA, create another login, verify their identity with Equifax. Ugh. Go to the IRS, forget transcript. You know, create a login, verify their identity with Equifax. Like at this point, you're managing multiple logins as a consumer. Um, the government's paid the same vendor multiple times for the same person, <laughs> and so and so. Commerce just said, "How about we just credential you once, and then we make the login and the data move with you." And so. The other part of the grant funding was um, was really designed to mature our technology so that we met all the federal standards and certifications and privacy stuff so that we could support the VA. So that was just a fundamental bridge and a necessary component for us to go private sector to to public sector. Tracking. Very interesting. It's it's all very interesting to me. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't understand. I understand about maybe half a percent of all that, but I understand like having to have that that uh, bridge with the government with NIST there and, and that allowed you to help the entire public sector. That's it's incredible. It's incredible what you've done there. Thanks, Tanner. Absolutely. I've lived through, I've lived through it and I still don't understand. So <laughs> <laughs> like, you're like cool. <laughs> cool guys. You're doing good stuff. I'm kidding. That's right. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. no, that's right. But even the fact that that program existed, I mean, it was like luck plays a role in that journey. You know, it's just like it's just like combat patrol. There's some weird stuff that happens and it's like, man, really glad that you know we turned left there. That was kind of random, but we avoided you know, an ambush or something like that. And hey. I, I feel like entrepreneurship has those same ups and downs or sometimes they break for you and, and sometimes they don't. Gotcha. So you had, you had, I guess the government was, was an investor for growth with, the, with your grant money. Um, when you first started, did you, did you immediately have to find investors to, to immediately grow to where you wanted to be for like an Under Armour? Yeah. So um, when I was at when I was at Harvard Business School, because um, I'd started the company as a as an academic project um, going into my second year, I I declined an offer from McKinsey, 
uh, which, which is crazy because we didn't really have any funding. I had no savings to speak of. Um, McKinsey is, is probably the preeminent management consulting firm and they would have paid me a lot of money. Mm. And, um, and so instead I was, you know, playing call of duty with my buddy, Anthony Bengay, who's like an <laughs> English guy. <laughs> you know, we're just it's like, Blakey, you want to play some call of duty? I'm like, right. Yeah. I'm like, okay, let's do it. So, so I get a, I get a phone call from one of my classmates and he goes, um, David Tish is in town. He heard about, you know, your idea and, and how you want to help the military. And he'd like to meet you for coffee. And now, uh, for those who aren't familiar, the Tisch family in New York like owns like half of Manhattan real estate. They own the New York Giants. They own yeah. Lowe's hotels. Yeah. And David had just been named the managing director of Techstars New York. And so my, my buddy who called me said, uh, do you want to meet with them? And he's like, it's cool if you don't have time. You know, I'll, I'll just tell him you can't make it. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm looking at my Call of Duty screen and I'm like, I think I can make it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. So I literally just caught a bus down to Boylston Street, met him for coffee and, you know, had a check for like $25,000 after, you know, 30 minutes wow. um, of, of talking. Wow. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's very, very cool. And it, we eventually raised like a hundred grand to like seed funding and that kind of put us on our way. What What is your... Uh... For you, what's the best way to pitch an, an idea to a potential investor, like 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 a Tish or or a customer like Under Armour? What's the, what's the best way for you? What, what have you found to be the best way? I think there's a few elements that you need. Um, the first thing you need is to be credible, and this is this is true in the military, and it's true in entrepreneurship. The very first thing, you know, if if you walk into a Marine platoon, the very first thing they're going to look for are you physically fit right? Yep. If you're not physically fit, you are not credible. And it doesn't matter how good of a person you are, empathy or skilled, like you're just, they're just not going to respect you. Sure. So the first thing you have to do is for whatever business you're starting, they're going to ask, are you credible? Should I listen to you? What, what do you have that makes you different where you could succeed here? And then I think once, once you pass that test, um, you have to have a very structured, um, way to, to present your business idea. And, and I think, I think there's really only four questions that you need to, to answer. The first one is, um, how many people are you solving this problem for? How many, uh, how often do you solve the problem for them? How much do you get paid every time you solve the problem for them? And what keeps you from being squashed by a competitor, right? And if you answer those four questions, um, and I'll, I'll like quickly map out, like I love Visa. Visa's business model is great. Mm. They solve a payments problem for everyone. How often do you pay? A lot. You pay like multiple times per day. Sure. They make like a quarter every time you pay and they have network effects. They have all the banks and merchants. So it's very hard for somebody to enter the market to compete with Visa or MasterCard. It's probably my favorite business. Gotcha. Um, you look at like Ford though, and it's like, well, the market for car buyers is a lot smaller and the frequency of purchase is like every few years. So that's very low as well. But then the cost, you know, what you get paid every time you solve the problem is like, you know, 50 grand. Yeah. So, so their business model, you know, spikes in one area to make up for um, the, the, you know, the lack of um, attractiveness in, in terms of frequency of purchase or the overall market. And, and building a car is really hard. So there's real economies of scale that protect that business. So, so you know, if you, if you kind of map any business along those four um, questions, 
that's what any investor is kind of looking for is how your business models align to the problem that you're solving and, and whether, whether it's something that's viable. Um, and then the last thing I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, mess up is, uh, is they don't ask for what they want. Uh, I've listened to a number of pitches where, you know, somebody will walk through it and they're clearly passionate and it's a problem and they've got a great idea. And then the pitch just ends. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> good job. Like, I'm happy for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What, what do you want from me? Like, why did I just listen to that? What are we doing here with coffee? You know, what, what's, what's up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like, do you want money? Um, do you want introductions? Like, how, how can this group help? And I think yeah. learning the art of salesmanship is, um, is really important that, like, sales isn't, you know, uh, isn't something to be scared of. Like the beautiful thing about this country is there's so many people who want entrepreneurs to succeed. And all you have to do at the end is like very clearly tell them it should be the last thing that you tell them, this is how you can help me, or this is what I want. And if you make that ask crystal clear, um, that really helps. And so, you know, for David, it was, this is what I want to do. And it was like, I need money and I'm trying to put together a hundred thousand dollars. I'd love to have you on board. And also I'd love to have you as a mentor. Um, because of your experience in technology. So, so ending that with a really clear ask. Um, and then the, the sec, the last thing they'll want to see if you, if you check the box and all of that is they'll want to know about the team. Mm. And, and I, there's a, there's a great post by Brian Armstrong, who's the CEO of Coinbase, a multi-billion dollar company. And he wrote a, a blog post, I think it's called what CEOs do. And it basically lays out that there are four types of CEOs. There's a technical CEO there's a sales and marketing CEO, there's a design CEO, and there's an operations CEO. Mm. So for instance, Mark Zuckerberg is a technical CEO. He's essentially the CTO of, of Facebook. And so what he did is he said, well, I'm not the business person. So he brought Sheryl Sandberg in to be his business CEO, right? Yeah. Brian Chesky at Airbnb is not a technical CEO or a sales and marketing CEO. He's a product and design CEO. That's what Airbnb is known for is their design chops. And so, so having the self-awareness to say out of these four categories, sales and marketing, ops, you know, technology and design, you can be a CEO and be successful with any one of those skill sets, but you have to be self-aware enough to say, I solve this one. Now I need to get people who are really great in these other seats so that they're not just investing in a person, they're investing in a, in a team that's got the foundations and the skills necessary. And, and they'll want to know that if I, you know, if I stroke you a check for $100,000, like who's building the platform and, you know, who's responsible for product and design. And you really want to have a thoughtful answer about that. Hopefully you have the team, but if you don't, you at least should have a sense for, for what you need to do to fill that role. And what can often happen is uh, an investor might say, well, if you can find that person and send me their pro you know, profile, if they agree to join, then I'll write the check. Yeah. And it becomes a an egg dance where like you sign the person in a salary and then that unlocks the funding. And I definitely danced that dance a few times in the early days. Mm. Wow. That sounds like a delicate dance. <laughs> Cause there's, there's, there's trepidation on both sides, both from the, both from the team member and from the investor. Oh yeah. I can, I can, I can understand. I can hear that sigh that you just said. Ultimate parlay. Yeah. You're just like trying to get everything to line up, but yeah, it's uh it's a ton of work. Yeah. Team building. Uh, man. Mm -hmm. Okay. Blake, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, what's one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today as an entrepreneur? Um, never, never give up if it matters. 
uh, it's probably the defining moment of my military career was uh, was during Ranger School, and uh, we were jumping into to swamp phase in Florida, and I'd gotten wrecked. I had poison ivy all over my body <laughs> that I'd, that I'd gotten in in, uh, in bedding phase that had just like wrecked me and bronchitis. <laughs> And I was so miserable. And, and I just remember as, as I was like walking towards the door as a night jump, um, I really did not care if the chute opened or not. If this is it, uh, yep. I was, like, I was literally thinking like win-win, win, baby, you know, as I went out. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. But, That's miserable, man. That is miserable. I was so miserable. Tanner, you know no idea. It's just so miserable. Um, but what I realized at that moment is that I was like, I will literally die before I quit. I will die. And, and at that moment, what Ranger School taught me was my limitations, my mental, my physical limitations. But I realized if I'm committed to something that's worth doing, I, once my jaws are clamped around that thing, you will have to get a crowbar and like probably a few people to pry me off of it Love because it. I'm going to get it done. And you have to bring that same attitude. If you find something that you're passionate about, you have to have that same tenacity to just get it. Love it. Outstanding. Um, Blake, is there a veteran nonprofit or an individual that you've worked with or that, you, or that you've had experience with whom you'd like to mention? Oh, there's, um, I, first I love Fisher house and their mission, what they do uh, yeah. for all of our wounded service members and their families. Fisher house is wonderful. I'm a big fan of uh, team Rubicon and, you know, Jake and, and William and, and, uh, and the folks who are, are involved uh, with that organization, I think they're doing terrific work. So if I, if I could highlight two, it'd be Fisher House and Team Rubicon. Yeah, I, think, uh, I think Team Rubicon was here when Tim was the guest and we had the present CEO of, uh, of Fisher House. Again, both great interviews if you get a chance to, to look through our archives. Um, Blake, is there, we've covered, like I said, we've covered a lot of ground. Is there anything else that I may have missed or that I didn't bring bring up that you think is important to share? No, I, I mean I I've really enjoyed the conversation, Tanner. And um and if your you know listeners have any follow up questions or anything else, um, I'm always happy to pay it forward. Any veteran, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship or or anything that can help folks get a leg up. Outstanding. Uh, is there a way that they can? If there's a way that they can contact you, let me know and 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 I'll put it in the blog or something like that. Yep. Blake at ID.me, just my email address. Happy to circulate that. And if you're a veteran and reach out to me, I'll, I'll absolutely respond. Gotcha. Is it, it's just Blake ID. It's not like a last name or anything. It's just Blake. Blake at ID.me. I yep. love that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, yo, it's Blake, dude. Just not Blake Hall, just Blake. Just Blake. Just Blake. I was able to use the VA home loan two years ago to buy our home with zero money down. I was amazed that there was so much in place to really help the veterans, and the VA serves as that catalyst with all those resources. Choose VA today. Visit VA.gov. I want to thank Blake for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. For more information on Blake, if you just search for BlakeHallID.me, he has a robust presence online. Our Veteran of the Week nomination was emailed in to podcast at va.gov by listener Catherine Monet. She also provided a couple of links from OULLalumni.com and a couple of others.
For nearly 50 years, Carlos Martinez has led the American GI Forum National Veterans Outreach Program, a nonprofit he founded to serve the needs of military veterans. Under his direction, the American GI Forum National Veterans Outreach Program has served an estimated 450,000 veterans, family members, and other needy individuals in San Antonio, Austin, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, and El Paso. Martinez started AGIF and VOP in 1972 with 10 employees and a $100,000 grant for six months. Currently, it's a nonprofit with an $18 million budget and 160 employees in five cities. A veteran himself, Martinez served four years in the Air Force as a crew chief for F-4 Phantom Jets that were flown in the Vietnam War. Though he did not serve in Vietnam, Martinez was told to not wear his uniform when he came home for leave. The hostility toward U.S. soldiers inspired Martinez to start AGIF and VOP. Vietnam-era veterans were not being appreciated by our country, he said, and they were not receiving the services they needed. I believe the benefits and recognition that veterans get today was built on the shoulders of the Vietnam veterans who were not well received when they came back from the war, to which I could not agree more. Carlos served as a member on many different committees, like the VA's Advisory Committee on Homeless Veterans, the U.S. Department of Labor's Veterans, and the Women's Veteran Advisory Committee, just to name a few. He was an inaugural member of the Bush Institute's Military Service Initiative Advisory Council and was currently serving on the board of the National Coalition for Homeless Veterans. During his years of service, Carlos has sat before five presidents of the United States to discuss major veterans' issues. He was truly an advocate for America's veterans, especially homeless veterans, and supported those that testified before congressional committees. Sadly, Carlos passed away at the age of 73 on August 4th from complications associated with COVID-19. And he was preceded by his wife, Rita, who also died from COVID about three weeks earlier. Air Force veteran Carlos Martinez. We honor his service. Ready. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. And follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, RallyPoint, and LinkedIn. DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you right here next week. Take care.
So, so one of my favorite stories, uh, my, my driver, Benjamin Young, he, he was like six foot two, probably weighed 140 pounds dripping wet. And he, he talked like Napoleon dynamite. So he'd be like, Oh, Roger, you know, gosh, eat your ham, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm walking, I'm walking by, uh, it, we're in Baghdad and I'm, I'm walking across uh, Camp Striker. And I just see my snipers and they're literally like doubled over with laughter. And I see, I see Youngie, you know, in the middle of them and they're like, sir, get over here. They're like, they're like, Youngie, have you told the sir about McDonald's? And he's like, no. I'm like, all right, young. He's like, what happened with McDonald's? He's like, all right. So he's like, so I'm working on the grill and it's really hot and it sucks. He's like, my manager comes up and says, you can work the window today. And I'm like, sweet. <laughs> okay. So he, goes, he goes, so we get to the window and the first car is this convertible and it's this guy with his girlfriend and she's really hot and I'm staring at her. And he goes, the guy looks at me and goes, are you staring at my girlfriend? And he goes, no. And he, and he goes, what do you think? She's, she's uh, hot. And he goes, no, she's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the guy reaches out of his car and grabs Youngie through the drive through window and is like pulling him to the window. He's like, yeah, my manager had to come over and like grab me away from it. <laughs> wow. Could go sweet ninja skills. He goes, he goes right back to the grill. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, Youngie, if she was hot, why did why did you tell her that the the guy that she's ugly? He's like, I don't know, I panicked. <laughs> and he tells it like in the, in the Napoleon Dynamite. It's, oh, it's just his um, natural. It's his natural voice. Oh like, my gosh! So he's not even yeah. trying to like joke through the movie. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> No, my, my first firefight in Mosul, when we got into it, uh, it was a, I'll spare you the details, but basically I had all my trucks lined up 50 cal rocking and I'm looking at, there's no place to dismount my, uh, my guys and Youngie is my driver. So I go Youngie, I'm like, I want you to, I want you to hit it. I want you to drive the truck straight through the gate and drive it into the ground floor of the house. And so the, the, I don't hear anything back. Like there's just tracers both ways. And I'm like waiting and I'm like, Youngie, did, did you hear me? He goes, <laughs> he goes, Roger, sparks may fly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the only time I've literally like laughed like hilariously during a firefight. But um, yeah, like, later I'm like, I'm like, Youngie, why did it take 15 seconds? He goes, Sir, he's like, I'd always thought that maybe like one time I get to drive the truck like into a building or, and then you told me that I could do it. And I just didn't know if it was real. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, I love, I love that kid. And, uh, yeah. Yep. 